Well, good morning. Happy 4th of July, as we've already welcomed you with that greeting. I'm excited about 4th of July. I think I may be even a little bit more excited about VBS. If you have never been involved with VBS, you should be. I mean, just for the pure, pure fun and energy and entertainment. It's amazing what God does, and it's amazing the amount of energy in this room at VBS. It's stunning. There's a lot of energy in the room here. It's good. It's good. You guys are here. You made it. Congratulations. For you folks on the patio and online, we're glad you're joining us as well. As Matt already said, we're continuing our series through Proverbs. We're going to talk about Proverbs 13, 12 today. And um, it's about hope and disappointment. And because we're in the midst of summer, in the heart of baseball season, I thought it was the perfect opportunity to talk about what? I thought it was the perfect opportunity not to talk about hope and disappointment. Although, Angel fans? Sorry about that. Yeah, I know, I know. I want to talk about the Super Bowl. Does that put you in a better mood? <laughs> Super Bowl 56, I think it was, held in Los Angeles with our own Los Angeles Rams as part of it, facing the dreaded Cincinnati Bengals. When it was all over, it looks something like this. We all know, at least I would think we all know, that the Rams won by three points. Both teams went into the Super Bowl hoping to win, planning to win, preparing for to win. And not just that day or that weekend or that, those weeks leading up to it, not just when the playoffs started, but at the beginning of the season. At the beginning of the season, 32 teams hoped, some with a little more confidence than others, to be in the Super Bowl. Only two got to be there. Only one got to win. Proverbs 13, 12, that's what we're going to talk about today, says this. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred, Bengals, dream fulfilled, Rams. So we're going to work our way through this. Here's the verse. Again, in the New Living Translation, it reads, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing, sorry, a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. The NIV makes it even more emphatic. It says, a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. It kind of sums up that whole situation. Certainly in the, in the professional football, in the Super Bowl, teams prepare for it the whole season. More than that, many of them prepare for it their whole career. For some of them, it was a dream since childhood that they would be able to win a Super Bowl. But very few people do. The odds are stacked against them. So here's the question. Is hope worth it? I mean, if you're in professional football, you're hoping for a Super Bowl victory, it's not likely to go your way. The odds are against you. And you say, what do you mean? What kind of a question of that is hope, is hope worth it? Of course it is. You, you have to have hope. How do you get through life without hope? You have to have hope. But if you are someone who's experienced that, that hope deferred, you are hoping for something, and it, not today, not this week, not this year, and it looks like maybe never, 
You might be asking yourself this question. If hope just sets me up for disappointment, why keep on hoping? Well, we'll see if we can address that for you a little bit, help you process that question a little bit. We all hope for all sorts of different things. If you go on the internet, you might get something like this, and that's kind of interesting, but what's more important is what you as an individual are hoping for. So <clears throat> we hope for little things. Uh, we hope that the Rams will win a Super Bowl. Maybe that's not a little thing for you, but you hope that the Angels will win another World Series. Maybe just hope they will get to 500. I don't know, whatever your hope is, we hope for different things. We hope for things that are big, like we hope for peace in the Ukraine. We hope that on the anniversary of our country, it will become a better country. We hope for things that impact us a little more directly. We hope that we will pass that test. We hope that we will get into that school or our child will get into that school because if they get into that school, it leads to the rest of their life. We hope we will get that promotion. We hope we will just get that job. We also hope for things that are a little more personal, a little more heart impacting. We hope that we will find our true love. We hope that we will get good news from the doctor. We hope that that relationship that is broken will be restored. And in the midst of those various and sundry hopes, Proverbs 13, 12 simply says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. And part of me says, Solomon, we believe Solomon compiled, wrote most of Proverbs. Solomon, that's all you got for me? <laughs> Hope deferred makes the heart sick, a dream fulfilled is a tree of that. That's it? What is this verse about? What is it, what is it doing here? What am I supposed to do with it? That, that's, that's all you're giving me? Okay, well, here's our plan for today. We're going to try and wrestle with this. This issue of hope and disappointment and what Proverbs 13, 12 offers us. But in order to do that, first I think we have to go back and talk a little bit about Proverbs itself, the book of Proverbs. A little bit of a review if you've been here with us before, but it's always good sometimes you're going to drill down on just one verse. It's good to keep kind of the bigger picture in mind. So we'll start there, and then we'll go to Proverbs 13, 12. And I think we can pull away from it four reasons Solomon included it in this book, four insights that we can garner for it, from it to apply to our own lives. And then, since I asked the question, I should answer it, is it worth it? Is hope worth it? Okay, let's get started. The nature of Proverbs. Proverbs is, uh, of course, a book in the Bible, and the Bible is made up of 66 books, Proverbs is one of those books that we call part of the poetic literature. It, it doesn't read a story from start to finish, and it's written not, not in prose, but it's written in a poetic form to help make it more memorable, actually. And one of the reasons that we are doing this series is sort of skipping around from place to place is because it's conducive to that. It's not a, it's not a story. It's teaching us about wisdom in various ways. There are sections that read sort of with a, a bit of a narrative or a bit of a theme. In the opening, it talks about how 
wisdom is appealing to you like a person. Most of the Proverbs that we think of are the ones that are just these kind of short, pithy sayings that remind us of little insights on life. Sometimes they give us instructions. Sometimes they give us recommendations. They give us guidance on how we should live. And the book of Proverbs says for sure that it's about wisdom. It's called wisdom literature, but also its goal, Eric read this to us at the beginning and preached this to us, that it's about gaining wisdom. Now, when I was a young person, I became a believer in high school and I read the book of Proverbs and I got kind of excited about it because a lot of it is directed to young people. It says it's an old man speaking to a younger guy saying, learn from me, take on wisdom. It will help you be successful for, throughout all of life. I was kind of excited about this because I thought, this is fantastic. This is like, this is like the key to life. These, these are like life hacks. These are magic secret insights into how to be successful. It was almost more to me about, about power. You know, if I figure all this out, I'll be the smartest guy in the room and, and I can just take off and live my life successfully. I won't need anybody. And, and I think I lost my way in that line of thinking. Because the Proverbs also says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. To understand who God is and our relationship to him, that we are dependent upon him, that we need him. Because although there are wonderful principles in Proverbs, there's always exceptions and life is full of surprises and we need each other and we need God when those exceptions and those surprises come along especially. So Proverbs is not just about insight, it's also about character. It's not about just giving us the right answers, it's about enabling us to live in a way that is virtuous. It's the difference between being a wise person and just being a wise guy. And, and I was at risk of just becoming a wise guy. Here's how I would summarize the, the message of Proverbs in shorthand. <clears throat> Proverbs basically says this. If you want to live well, do good. And if you do good, you will probably do well. But if you don't do well, still do good because that's how you live well. Hope that made sense. I'm not sure I can repeat it. The idea is that we live life, God has called us to do good, to live a virtuous life. And more often than that, that will lead to blessings and prosperity and good things that happen in life. But not always, because life is also supposed to be lived in relationship with God. And perhaps most especially, when we do good and don't find that we do well, we need that comfort and encouragement and dependence on God. Now, what about Proverbs 13, 12? It's, it's like I said, it's, it's not much of an, if it's an instruction, it's not a very good one. What are we supposed to do with this? Are we supposed to just make sure if we have a hope that it always comes to pass? How do you do that? It's, it's not a promise. It's certainly not a command. It is an observation. Solomon is, is basically playing sociologist. He's saying, when I look at life, this is what I observe happens. This is true about life. And so the other aspect of Proverbs is that it is meditative literature. We don't always get it at the first pass. We don't read it the first time and say, oh, I've got everything it's got to give for me. Sometimes we have to sit with it. We have to reflect on it. We have to talk about it with friends 
and in small groups and in Bible studies to kind of wrestle with, with it, to get out the meaning, the guidance, the instructions that it has for us. Let me illustrate. Here is a proverb. It is not from the book of Proverbs. Don't try and find it here. Don't quote it. Don't look it up. It's just a proverb. And it reads like this. A 14-year-old has never been 40, but a 40-year-old has been 14. You go, Norm, that is fantastic. What a brilliant insight into the obvious. But what's the message behind the obvious observation? You're probably ahead of me on this. If you're in this room and you're somewhere around 14, and there's a 40-year-old that's offering you advice, I don't know, could be a parent, for example. <laughs> You've never been where they are, but they've been where you are. They may have no idea how to use TikTok, but nevertheless, they may have something to offer you. That's the message inferred or implied in this little quip. Proverbs 13:12 is maybe a little bit like that. So, four reasons I think we can glean from why Solomon put it in Proverbs, why God put it in his holy, inspired word. Number one, reason number one is to face reality. When we read the words, hope deferred makes the heart sick, it reminds us that it doesn't always go the way we hope. And that sounds like bad news, but the good news in that is this, it prepares us. We don't face life and think, oh my gosh, something has gone wrong. Where is God? We're off the rails. He's forgotten me. He's left me. Jesus did the same thing for his disciples. In John chapter 14, 15, and 16, he's giving them kind of his final instructions before he heads to the cross. And at the end of this section, he says these words in John 16, 33. He says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. He wanted them to know in advance it's not always going to be easy, but they could be confident that he is with them and he will make it turn out okay. Now, faced with that kind of good news, again, we say is, is that all there is? It's just a matter of being able to face reality. Well, if we know that disappointment is likely, maybe even almost assured, what are we supposed to do with our hope? Well, one option for sure is just say, I got it. I'm not going to hope ever again. I'm going to make sure that I never get disappointed again because I just won't get my hopes up. Have you ever been given that advice? Don't get your hopes up. That's the one way I can protect myself from ever being disappointed again. I just won't hope again. I say to some of my friends, it's kind of a joke, I say, I am a recovering pessimist. Now, that's not to make light of any of us that are dealing with real addiction. But it's just my way of admitting that I am prone to the negative. I find it easy to just go, this is never going to work out. This is going to be terrible. That's a natural tendency that I have that I'm aware of. And I got to fight against it. I once heard a speaker talk about this. He said, he said, when we look at the research, optimists versus pessimists, 
I, I mean, it's stunning. It, why would anybody be a pessimist? If you're an optimist, you live longer. You have better friendships and deeper relationships. You're happier. Why in the world would anyone want to be a pessimist? And he answered his own question, but he said, because he said, I've got one theory. He says, if you're a pessimist, you're bound to be right eventually. <laughs> because things go wrong eventually, don't they? So if it's really important to you to be right, be a pessimist, because eventually you're going to get to say, I told you so. There is another reason, at least for me personally, and that is this idea of protection. I don't want to be hurt anymore. I don't want to be disappointed anymore. So if I just don't hope or I keep my hopes and my expectations low enough, then maybe I won't be disappointed anymore. And there's some of you that probably have that same thought and that same experience. And I want to encourage you, partly by this next point, that that's not necessary to land on that decision. Because the other reason that he puts it here is to encourage us to find comfort in God. When we are disappointed, when we have hopes for that relationship, for that job, for our health, and it's the answer we get is not today, not now, maybe not ever, God meets us in that to comfort us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 says this, All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given to us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with the comfort through Christ. God meets us in our difficulty, in our disappointment, in our shattered hopes, to comfort us. But maybe you're saying, you know, I'm not really experiencing that, Norm. I'm not, I'm not sure I buy that. I mean, God is in his heaven. He's a long way away. I don't feel like I'm hearing from him right now. I don't feel that comfort you're talking about. I want to encourage you with the fact that God is not comforting from afar. He is not aloof and disconnected with you. You say, really? Can God really empathize with my situation? Has he ever been where I've been? I mean, God's hoped and then been disappointed by it? Can, can God even hope? There's a fun philosophical question. Can a being who knows everything that's going to happen in advance hope? What does it mean for God to have hope? I have no idea. I don't know that the Bible tells us that, that does God have hope in the same way that we have hope. But we do have from the scriptures the message that God experiences disappointment, that the God of heaven and earth has experienced disappointment just like we have. You don't have to go any further than John 3.16. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible, it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him but have everlasting life that God reached out to this world that rejected him, sent his son to die for them, to redeem them, knowing that many would simply say, no thank you, not for me. But he did it anyway. He knows what it is to have unrequited love. 
More than that, in the Gospels, Jesus expresses this. Near the end of his ministry, as things were getting more and more heated, he was in, in Luke, he was in all these debates with the Pharisees about their authority and his authority and the kingdom of God and what was coming. And right in the midst of that, I can almost picture him just sort of turning off onto the horizon and almost saying to himself these words. Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often have I wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. You can hear the desire. You can hear the pain, almost sadness in Jesus' voice. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed. They've done stupid things. God sends them prophets and they kill them. They have now sent his very son to come and rescue them. I've longed to come and take you away from your foolishness. But that last phrase is the most stunning of all. But you would not let me. It's almost absurd to think that the God of all creation, the God of heaven and earth, would put himself at the disposal, at the discretion of these people that they get to choose if he will rescue them or not. You will not let me. God very much knows what it is to experience disappointment. And see, so he can enter into it with us when we are heartbroken when we don't think we can get our hope up again. God knows what that is like, and he comforts us in the midst of it. Here's reason number three. It's not just wasted on us. It's so that we might care for each other. We read this already. This was taken out of that section of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 I read already. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It is easy for you to figure out that in your life, you are likely surrounded by people walking around with heart sickness because they have hopes, they have dreams, they have ambitions that are not coming true or haven't come true yet, and they are experiencing that heart sickness. God has called us to reach out and minister to those people, especially if we ourselves have experienced it. We can take that comfort that God has given to us and offer it to others. There are probably people in your neighborhoods, as we've already talked about. There are people at your work. There are people at your school that need that. Let me also say that you can get involved at Calvary in comforting others. On the screen are a number of organized ministries we have with the real focus and intention of comforting other people, of renewing their hope. And if you feel today, this morning, that maybe God is calling you to get involved in that, do it. Give it a try. Look it up on the website. Text to the card that you have interest. But here's an even better idea. If you're here on campus today, after the service, there'll be people at the connection point. There'll be people in the lobby that will help you get started in being that person that helps to comfort others. Been a little bit biased towards the negative side. Let's finish on a higher point. The first part of the verse Hope deferred makes the heart sick. The second half, but a dream fulfilled 
is a tree of life. A dream fulfilled is a tree of life. And again, I don't think Solomon is just telling, that to, telling us that to state the obvious, but to remind us that a dream fulfilled is a precious and wonderful thing. Because yes, God is with us in the difficulties, but he's also with us in the joys, in the successes, when we realize that hope that has at last been fulfilled. This image, a tree of life, hopefully it evokes to you, if you're familiar with the Bible, harkens you back to the Garden of Eden, to the early chapters of Genesis, and also the latter chapters of Revelation. It's throughout the scriptures, and it is this image that it's not only life-giving, but it continues to grow and gives life season after season. The idea here is that when God fulfills a hope that we've had, we need to, to hang on to that and remind ourselves of that. You know, at the end of the Super Bowl or any, any big event like that, you always see this in the post game. They come and interview people. Great game. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Are you going to renew your contract? What about next year? How do you think the team will do? And, you know, and, and the smarter, wiser competitors say, you know what? Right now, I'm just going to enjoy today. I'm going to celebrate this victory and worry about that next season. We need to do some of that ourselves. So find those ways, even during your 4th of July celebration. It is an example of reminding us what God has done for us, the blessings that we have in this country. But for in your family and in your life, remind yourself of those things. Put pictures on Facebook when really good things happen because then years later the memories will come back up and they will remind you of that. Write them in a journal. Celebrate them. Create your own holidays. Eric has encouraged us to do that. Make stuff up. Do what you need to do to remind yourselves of those victories because a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Hey, I said that um, I would go back and I'd answer this question. Is hope worth it? I'd say the answer is yes. It is absolutely worth it. But it's not free. It's not without risk. If you're going to hope, there's a potential for cost, for loss, for disappointment. But here's the thing. That's exactly what God has called us to if we believe in him, if we're following him. He's invited us not into a life where we spectate and wait for all our hopes and dreams to come true. He has invited us into an adventure, to adventure with him, to have risk, and to see him fulfill that. And when things don't go the way we hope, to know that he will be there to comfort us and encourage us. There's a verse in Romans chapter 5 where Paul says almost the opposite of this verse. He says, hope does not disappoint us. He's talking about the hope we have for eternity. Not a hope that the angels will get above 500. It's a hope that God has promised us that if we trust in him, we will be with him in eternity. It is a hope deferred because we haven't realized it yet, but it is a hope assured that we can count on. That hope will surely not disappoint us. I want to do one last thing before I wrap up. The, some of the worship team is going to come up and lead us and prepare us for communion. But I want to read to you from Psalm 126. And this is kind of a short psalm, but it's a psalm that the nation of Israel wrote down and recited to itself 
after they had come back from exile. And you can look it up and read along with me if you want. That's fine. But I might also encourage you just to close your eyes right now. I'm going to read it sort of especially slow. And just listen to it. Just hear the words and let it sink in. Perhaps God in the place that you're in right now will, will highlight certain things to you. Same thing if you're, you're watching me online. Close your eyes. Listen to the words. God may point out or highlight something in particular. He may put an image in your mind that he wants you to retain. So listen as I read these words from Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter and we sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. <laughs> 